Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. The podcast that can help educators from around the world navigate not only the present, but also the future. Through discussions of instruction, ed tech, policy, and school leadership, we're here to connect with you and educators from around the world to help them amplify student learning for the betterment of our students and their future. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast, episode number 56. And tonight's episode is on seven mind shifts for school leaders. And really excited to be talking with uh, a group of educators with so much experience and leadership um, at the building level, as well as the district level here to discuss um, these mind shifts, as well as their project that's related to this. So um, I'm Dr. Matt Rhodes, your host of the podcast. And really, when I'm thinking about mind shifts or just shifts, I, I really think of just really in, in my context, and I think many of our contexts, is, is that Historically, education has been really bureaucratic and rigid, and there's really not that much agility. But in the ever-increasing complexities of our world and the changing of our world, I think that there's something to be said a lot about agility in terms of um, how organizational structures work, as well as different ways that we can um, utilize different research strategies, as well as frameworks, and how we can provide instruction. So there's a lot of different ways that we can uh, shift and provide agility within our organizations. And I think that there's, you know, different mindsets that go along with that as well. And I think that um, these three, um, you know, school leaders um, have something to what they're talking about here. So I'm excited to talk about, you know, what type of mind shifts can I have at, you know, at the, I'm at basically at the district county level and how can I take these mind shifts to help me in my practice, but also how can school leaders at the building level as well as teacher leaders take some of these mind shifts that can help them, you know, navigate a lot of the really complex challenges that they're facing today, especially um, over the last uh, number of years of the pandemic, the politicization of education, equity and access issues, et cetera. So definitely um, excited to talk to everyone tonight about this. So I have Dr. Joe Jones, who's a superintendent from Delaware. Then I have Dr. TJ Barraria, who is, uh, is a assistant superintendent from Delaware as well. And then I have Connie Hamilton, who is an author and consultant. So thanks everyone for being here this evening. Thank you. Glad to be here, Matt. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we jump into talking about tonight's topic, which is on these seven mind shifts for school leaders, let's get to know uh, each other a little bit more. So if all, each of you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background in education and a little bit about how you got to where you are now. So we'll go ahead with uh, Dr. Jones and Dr. Barry, and then we'll end up with uh, Connie Hamilton. We'll go last. Thanks, Matt. So yeah, everybody, I think, is always appreciative of our stories and how we ended up in education. I was fortunate enough to student teach in a, in a great high school, William Penn High School, which is located in Delaware, and I had a wonderful experience. I really did student teaching as a fallback. I thought I would go on and get my master's in like history ed. I was looking at UNC and other schools, um, but really enjoyed teaching, really enjoyed connecting with kids, got hired in the district that I grew up in. 
Um, and then from there, my career moved forward, mainly because I had a lot of educators um, wrap their arms around me and say, you know what, Joe, uh, we think you're good at this. And they invested in me. And I share that because I think that's critical for those of us now in leadership positions. I directly had my immediate supervisor, you know, tell me to start thinking about administration. So after five years in the classroom, became an administrator and then went from assistant principal to principal to director of assessment and accountability and now um, superintendent which all of them have a lot of their um, pros and, and cons. I'd say the principalship, though, is where I, I probably mostly enjoyed because you have that ability to make a difference, to make serious impact, but you have relationship with kids. I love being a superintendent for a lot of reasons, um, but I definitely miss that connection with kids. So that's something I try to do, although it's not natural in the position. Matt, I'm, I'm an assistant superintendent now of a school district, a really fast growing school district. We grow at about 200 to 500 students a year. It's a great problem to have. Um, I oversee secondary schools and district operations. Before that, I was a principal of a middle school, assistant principal of a middle school, an English teacher in a high school. And believe it or not, I was a transplant um, from the business world as a as a restaurant manager um, before coming into education. So always a study on leadership and what it means to um, have a model of continuous improvement and just happy day to day to work with leaders who care a lot about kids and want to make a difference in the lives of the people they serve. And I'm Connie Hamilton and TJ, I didn't know that you were in the restaurant business. I was a server all through college, worked my way through college. Um, and, you know, like many people, I just sort of followed my passion. I was an only child for the first 10 years of my life. And I used to play school all the time with my stuffed animals as my students. And I would set up lessons and so forth. So I think education has just always been in my blood. And so I became a teacher and I taught at both the elementary and middle school levels. And then um, I really had an interest to be in the know. And in order to get into that role and really embrace kind of what's happening behind the scenes, administration really piqued my interest. And so I became a middle school assistant principal, principal and then that's when I really got my love for curriculum and instruction. And I thought if I'm going to do that at the district level, I should get some elementary experience too. So I became an elementary principal. And then um, the last position that I had in the schools was a uh, um, director of curriculum and instruction. Awesome. So we've got a wide variety of experiences and context here, which is great. And all that experience relates to, I think, a lot of the issues that we can talk about and each of you can provide your own unique lens and story um, to um, what we're going to be talking about tonight. So as you know, I, there, there's deeply entrenched problems in education. And is it? And this is what I ask a lot of people. Is it really the individual leaders in school systems or the entire education system that needs an overhaul? Because sometimes I feel like we're working around the boundary sometimes of what the policymakers give us and that's what we can do. But same time though, I think within our own school systems in terms of implementing policy, we can really have a lot of freedoms in terms of how we can create um, you know, systems that best meet where our students and community is at 
Um, so I want to hear your perspectives about this. Well, I can start off. I know that um, Joe and TJ will chime in. We've had lots of conversations about this, really to even to the level behind the scenes of how do we share our thoughts about the need for some pretty drastic reform and major upheaval of the education system without being too much of a downer and without communicating that in a way that people get defensive or they feel that it's a, a personal attack. So I think that educators are so vested in what they do. It's really part of their identity. So anytime that there's a, a question or a push about, is there a way that this could be done completely differently? Sometimes we tend to put up our armor and stand our ground if it's fear of change or, or something other than that. So we've all had some pretty um, common and, and deep conversations about the need for some overall reform within education. And with that, I'll let Joe and TJ kind of chime in as well. Yeah, I'll say this. I think education by and large is an industrial complex and it was built uh, with a foundation that's really strong and hard to change. And that's true about the system. It does many things very well. And there are also a lot of things that it doesn't do well, and it's not about to do them well tomorrow. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean some serious reform, a serious overhaul in certain areas. And again, things we do well, other things we're not about to start doing well anytime soon, unless we demonstrate some serious leadership. That's what the book is about. What I'll also say is within the system, there are schools and there are leaders and there are whole districts that are doing awesome things in new ways to support kids. And we need to highlight our bright spots and find out what they're doing differently to make change. And that's what leadership is all about. Uh, the definition of leadership is influence. The challenge of leadership is conflict. And the result of leadership is change. In education, the leader is the person who's willing to do something that might not work. Because right now we have a lot of things that don't work and we need to try some things differently. Matt, one no. thing, yeah, thank you. One thing we landed on is that we would say it's all of the above, right? It is the individual leaders, it is the system and in, in its entirety, as TJ said, I mean, it's a huge barge whether it's the individual school district or the system itself. One thing that we landed on, though, are what are those chronic conditions of failure? And then how do we typically approach them? So when Connie talks about us like diving into this work, it's really about trying to figure out, well, how have we messed up in the past in our approach to solving things? And I'll say this is where we are a little vulnerable and say, listen, in our positions or even in my current position, this is where I may fall short. And so we tried to approach it from that lens, knowing what we accomplished in the pandemic. And so that served as a backdrop to say, you know what, at times when we needed to, we shifted the system very fast. And we did that collectively as a group. We weren't necessarily worried about our turf. 
We got collaboration when collaboration was needed, whether it was industry, healthcare, food service, we did it. And we did it because everybody put the child first and realized that the very place in which they were educated was no longer suitable. So then what are we going to do? We can't stop educating. So when you're faced with that level of a problem, that's where the mind shifts occur. So we need to approach it with a sense of urgency and realize that, yes, we are sometimes a part of the problem, but it is within us to solve that problem. And this book kind of takes us through those mind shifts. You'll hear you know, all three of us mentioned, this is not a solution-based book. That's precisely what we didn't want it to be. Because as TJ said, there's great things going on everywhere, but they're not scaled and they're not necessarily replicable in every system. But the mindset to get there can be scaled and that can be replicated. No, I, I love all those ideas that you guys talked about, the notion of there's a lot of innovation and unique things going on within schools across the world. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from them. And you mentioned the different contexts in which they're in their communities. And those are things that we have taken into consideration. But really what you're talking about with these mind shifts is that really can take anyone um, that is in a position of influence, regardless of maybe what their position is, is that they can take these ideas um, and these basically mindsets where you can go in and, and provide that influence and hopefully create that positive change. So that's definitely great to hear because I, I hear a lot about different models or different types of um, frameworks. And I think many of them are good. And when they have really good examples of them working at, you know, various types of levels of um, you know, educational organizations, whether that's a large, small district or the school level. Um, so it's definitely, those are huge things to take into um, thought here. So I really want to get your guys' thoughts before we jump into talking a little bit more about what those mind shifts are. I think right now in education, I think the superintendent's position is one of the hardest positions to be in. I also think the principal is given the heightened politicalization of education. Um, when there's such a huge reaction on social media. Everyone just is looking for that huge, um, you know, that sensationalized response or just didn't really know the context of everything that's going on. You know, with all this going on in terms of making these important decisions that affect, um, you know, our classrooms, schools and districts, how can we navigate this while working towards creating solutions and, you know, or, um, working towards those solutions in, in the schools and districts. Well, one thing, Matt, is you talked about reform, you know, basically staying on the edges of, of things rather than holistically and um, something that you were mentioning before. And what I would say is one of my favorite books is First Break All the Rules. And the only way you get to break the rules is if you know them really well. And we hear from leaders who they make a lot of assumptions about policies. A lot of the practices are simply things that we've inherited um, and they aren't really the rules and that there is a lot of gray area uh, in leadership and in educational policy and educational reform. And we just encourage people to find what works best for kids without completely dismissing maybe the rule itself. 
Um, we don't want anybody to get in trouble, <laughs> but we also know that great leaders um, push the boundaries. And so that's what we have to do if we run into problems with, you know, current policies that we think we need to follow that may actually be at a detriment to the outcomes that we're looking for. So study, 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 don't take anything for granted, don't make any assumptions and find the gray areas and the periphery where you can do things a little bit differently. Matt, I'll add to that in the sense that right now you're hundred percent right. Things are highly politicized and from the superintendency in other seats, you know, that means you have to communicate more and often. And I want, I learned, you know, Connie's not my only friend in Michigan. I have one <laughs> other, her name's Shelly. And uh, one thing Shelly taught me is every time you fail to communicate, and I don't mean that you've communicated wrong, just haven't communicated. Think about that as a valley. So every time you communicate, that's a peak. Everything else is getting filled in between those two peaks. That's not your message. So if you're not communicating with your board of education frequently and consistently about things like culturally responsive teaching that may suddenly get pulled into the world of CRT and you're like, well, hold on, you know, that's not what we're doing. Or you're moving down the angle of SEL, which we know is critical pre-COVID, we know is critical. We saw the effects of No Child Left Behind when it left out everything on SEL. So if you're not allowing, you know, your team to communicate actively, if you're not communicating actively, then you're not controlling the narrative. So I would say that's probably the most practical way leaders can approach this is through that communication. If not, it is going to get derailed and it's going to get derailed quick. So for leaders, principals, assistant soups, soups, you know, rotary clubs, going to chamber meetings, you know, these aren't things educators typically think about, but they must start to. And you have to make yourself available. And if you can speak for two minutes, just inform the community on what's going on. But it has to be a dogged, active approach or you will get railroaded. And I unfortunately, it's happening. Yeah, and I think the only layer that I could add to what they've already said is when you have you when you know your why and you have your vision and you're really intentional and purposeful with the path that you're going to take to achieve your goals, then you have a consistency. And therefore, when you are communicating, there isn't any there there's less doubt with folks that are on the receiving end of that because you have that consistency to say, this is where our heart is. And so when we make this decision, guess where our heart is. When we make this decision, guess where our heart is. When we make this decision. And so that consistency in communicating the backstory and the navigation can help you to kind of rubberize your skin a little bit so that if you do find yourself on the receiving end of some negativity or some political backlash, you can still have some peace of mind of knowing that you have the consistency and that you're making progress toward the outcomes that you've set clearly. I like the notion of that consistency piece. And I, I want to just also mention, I think that there's this 
notion, like this idea of visibility, but doesn't necessarily need to be like always essentially like in-person visible, but it's in terms of like what I call overt and covert visibility and that communication piece, you're communicating through a lot of different means, whether it's through all going to these physical meetings or, you know, on social media or through any direct ways of communication, aligning that transparency to it, to those stakeholders. So I think that there's a lot to be said about that. And I just think it's um, for many, it's, it's extremely difficult. And I think that it takes time to learn and there's not like something that you learn in your um, administrative services credential, or maybe even in a doctoral program of how to do this. Because I think that in the world that we live in, we haven't really developed that yet where that skill set that you can sequence um, and build um, in a course, but I also think that it's an experience thing as well, and it takes time to build. So I think all those things that you guys said is are, are really, really important and really necessary for leaders in this climate to um, really take hold of, because like um, Dr. Jones said, is that it could, get, you know, it could, things could escalate quite easily and it could not necessarily be a good um, outcome for you or, um, you know, people that are working with you as well as stakeholders. So let's jump into really talking about what these mind shifts are. So I believe that there's seven of them. So if you guys could just summarize them a little bit here and then talk a little bit about, um, you know, how can they help, you know, leaders, um, you know, influence and navigate the present and future of education? Do you want to kick it off, TJ? Sure. I can um, review all seven real quick, and then maybe we'll dive into one or two. Uh, the first one is a crisis mindset. And this is really important where we start the book off because we redefine what it means to have a crisis mindset and to live within crisis and to make sure that we capitalize on crisis and that we name the crises that we have and treat them as such. The next one's a battleground mentality. It's about, you know, partly about being relentless, but treating things as if we need to go to battle with them. Uh, the third one is a beginner's mindset. And we learned a lot from Richard Elmore about approaching things uh, as a novice. Uh, the fourth one is the uh, octopus approach, and this is about systems thinking. The fifth one is called a disciplined tunnel vision, and it's about a six-step process for having a vision and seeing it all the way through to a change and being you know, very disciplined about not letting our eye off the prize. Um, the sixth one is called a yes and mentality. We find a lot of people with a yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but that won't work. And so we say yes, and we need to do something differently. And then the seventh one is called a go with what is known response because we have lots and lots of literature and education and tons and tons of research and theory, but we don't typically find it in practice. So that last one is a reminder to take the book off the shelf and say something like grading and just do what it says. <laughs> I, you know, I just want to uh, comment and say that, you know, I've read like um, Norhouse, Atomic Habits, um, Effortless recently. Um, there's a lot of different things I think that you guys are, you know, pumping into this, which is great from like the leadership, um, from the education world, but also a variety of different other spheres. Um, 
that can, I think, really help, um, you know, leaders in any context, um, you know, navigate. The first one, crisis management, I feel like that, um, I wonder if you guys would have changed it if it was, um, you know, three years ago before COVID. I wonder about that, but uh, I'll let you guys answer that question. But I do think at schools, a lot of things come up. I mean, and you got to figure it out. You got to be on your toes and figure, figure it out. And hopefully you have the systems in place so that you can um, not have to, you know, lose any hair on it. But uh, do you guys want to elaborate on a couple of these on, you know, you know, how, for example, using crisis management can help someone, um, you know, navigate, you know, this current school week, as well as maybe the next, um, you know, few months or school year. Yeah, one I, I really like, and just because it's a little different and we try to be it a little fun is the octopus approach. Matt, and I think this is a common mistake where going back to your original, you know, your, your other question on, you know, how can we approach some of these? So you need to embrace the crisis mindset, which is that you're going to take an unfiltered 360 degree view of every problem. And so, and we're talking perennial problems, right? Not, not the spill in the cafeteria. TJ had a great, great uh, example on that. So these are more perennial. These are ones that are the Achilles heel of our, of our schools. And the Octus approach simply says that you want to identify every single possible aspect of that problem. And so we'll talk about things like root cause and other things. However, you know, the octopus, even at the, the, the way it's designed, we get into that and really start to see how that can start to operate independently and together in a system. And so we dig into things like diversity and equity and how that would work in school systems. Um, but again, you know, a real common example is, you know, third grade reading scores. You hear this all the time. People, you know, NAEP just came out, you know, and so everybody's up in arms for two weeks about NAEP. And so we look at third grade reading scores. Students are underperforming. So what do we do? We take a look at our teachers. We take a look at our vertical curriculum align. We look at our reading program, our reading strategies. But a lot of times you might need to just look at how transient your student population is. All of those things might be working very well. So have we taken the time to look at the cohort of students in our school that started with us in kindergarten and how well did they perform? If they performed on level, then you don't necessarily have a curriculum problem or a reading issue. You may have an acclimation of new students to your school problem. You may not be doing RTI well. You know, th those are things to take a look at. But we'll jump to some of the easiest solutions that simply overburden the system and especially overburden teachers. So we have to get better. And the octopus approach kind of breaks all those tentacles down so you don't rush to conclusions that may look great on paper, but just frustrate and burden the system. No, definitely. And I, and I like that notion of the octopus systems thinking. I think that there needs to be more emphasis on that in terms of just day to day. I think we talk a lot about it from like the sky view, but I think that we need to be really focusing on those systems more on a day to day basis and reevaluating them and thinking like, hey, is this is this working or are we looking at the right data here? Like you're mentioning in that example. So I think that, that that's a, that's a really great point, and I'm glad that that is in the in in the book, and you guys discussed that. So, speaking of you know thinking about what this looks like in um, you know 
in places around the country. Did you guys look at any like case studies of these types of uh, mind shifts happening, maybe from your own experience, but as well as other educators and leaders? Well, Matt, one place that we did find these things happening and we added stories in the book is outside of education. And so we wanted leaders to see how possible that these things can be. Um, we don't tell a whole ton of stories from inside of education because the models that we use to build each of the mind shifts are new. And the whole premise is that we learned during COVID how people have applied some of this to make change faster than ever before, faster towards problems that we've had for a really long time that we fixed in sometimes days and weeks. And so we steered clear of real and necessary examples from education because we wanted the models to be applicable to school leaders. And we let them see how they work in other domains to show that in crises, leaders um, are called to action. And my co-authors here can say more about that. But um, there are school districts that are doing great things with the problems that we point out. But we took great lengths to use research um, from outside of education and from other fields to show that we're no different. We just need to think differently. Yeah, I think one of kind of going back to what you were asking about earlier, as far as the crisis mindset goes, and you you asked, would we still have that if it weren't for the pandemic? And, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, I, I might say no, we, this book probably wouldn't exist without COVID because it served as the inspiration for us to say, holy mackerel, like, <laughs> we can accomplish things that we never would have dreamed that even in our own positive growth mindsets of the, the three of us that we try to embrace, we even had this, yeah, that's not happening. We have a contract that says that teachers are not going to work from home and, you know, to do remote learning like that, that's impossible. We could never do that. And then suddenly we have teachers working from home and students who are logging in and we get them connectivity and they have hotspots and they have one-to-one -one and we're serving lunches. And so that whole experience of that, it really gave everyone sort of this injection of efficacy, right? Like we're, we have this efficacy level of, wow. And so that's kind of what inspired that. And so now like one of the chapters is looking at uh, the yes and attitude. So it's when you take those barriers that normally would cause us to be like, yeah, that's beyond us. That's, that's a state issue, or we have mandates that are in place that prohibit us. But rather than using that as a halting spot, we want leaders to embrace that and say, yes, indeed, that is a challenge. And how can we overcome that challenge? Because now we have experience in our lifetime that says we can overcome challenges that previously were considered unsolvable. No, I, I like that how you, you talked about taking examples from other industries and placing them in the context of education. And then also um, discussing really how, you know, maybe this wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the last three years in, in, in the pandemic that helped inspire you 
to think about these mind shifts for uh, school leaders and how we can tackle these perennial problems. And the pandemic illustrated at least for um, a couple of years or so that people did want to make those changes and do the things that they needed to do to ensure that learning was still happening. Um, before I jump into our last little question, I did want to ask um, one of you um, to respond to why are we seeing such a bounce back? Why after such upheaval and change, we've seen such a bounce back towards, you know, the same sit and deliver model in most places is it, you know, burnt people are burnt out or, you know, there was a clamp down because maybe, oh, we feel like that people took advantage or, you know, what are your thoughts? TJ, you want to kick off? Sure. Um, I think that it goes back to the system being the industrial complex that it is. And it bounced back to lots of traditions, things that we know how to do efficiently, even if they're not effective. And um, the system operationally is really good. You know, moving kids, feeding kids, changing classes, ringing bells, all that stuff is great. We do it really well. Um, but the actual education part and learning and what we've learned about the brain and neuroscience, um, in, in, in many places, we're still not doing that very well, but we snapped right back to it because that's the way it's designed. And so we have to be really, really intentional to think hard about where we need to break that design and change things. Um, and it's hard. We're not saying this is easy, right? <laughs> That's why the models are really important because they're models for thinking differently. And, um, really easy to go right back to what we've always done. And I think that people were yearning for that normalcy. And unfortunately we told everybody we were going to get back to normal. <laughs> and so everybody was looking forward to that, weren't yeah. they? I've been I've been reading a lot about neuroscience, and I I think that it it goes back to that amygdala amygdala right? Do I say this right? <laughs> it, it's that fight or flight, and when when there's any sense of danger, we want to protect ourselves. We go back to our comfort zone, and our bodies are designed to take us back to that comfort zone, and the comfort zone is what we knew. And stepping outside of that really takes um, a lot of effort and a lot of consistency and systems and good leadership in order to be able to support that. And I think TJ is right. People were so happy to um, have some sense of comfort and familiarity that uh, it allowed some schools to slip back into some of the practices that were not as productive pre-COVID. Yeah, man, I'm actually going to, I would challenge the question actually a little bit. Um, I think it's very normal to heal, right? People want to heal. They need to heal. And when we go through a long time of disruption, it's normal for the waters to come back to normal. I think the challenge for us isn't that it, it went back because people weren't necessarily in a position to know what to do next. So we, the normal isn't where it should be. It's as leaders, where do we go from here? 
what did we learn? And so, yeah, it's okay that we're here now, but how are we challenging this normalcy? Like, have we abandoned asynchronous days altogether? I can tell you in our district that we have built in asynchronous days this school year to allow for full-blown PLC days. Why? Because the 30 minutes after school wasn't cutting it. The four never meant it that way, but yet it got somehow um, into that, that morphed into that type of meeting. I would also say audit, audit some of the technology. When we went and those first two weeks were announced, I was petrified because I didn't know our teachers could necessarily teach online. That skill set is there now and it's there among all our teachers. So it's not that we're back to normal where they don't have that skill set. So we have to challenge it to say, all right, well, how could we use that skill set? And that could go back to like the asynchronous days. Now, I'm fortunate. I don't have the, the littles. I don't have the K-8. We're four high schools. So I'm fortunate we can do things like that. And I don't have parents that will panic about child care. But we were able to work within our system, just like I think any leader could work within their system. So I think really where we are now, now that we're, we're trying to settle, we saw a lot of issues among our students. We've bolstered SEL response. We've bolstered different types of care. We've bolstered academic initiatives. But are we going to just continue to do those things the same way we always done? Or are we going to take another approach to that? And I think it's the other approach where the genius lies. Um, or you'll do exactly what TJ said. You'll fall back. And then it's not the normal that we have to worry about. It's the comfort. I don't mind normal. I mind comfort. Comfort is the enemy of achievement. And that's where I want people to get back to being, you know, productively uncomfortable, productively restless and focus completely on student achievement. No, I, I, I think you just what you said is, is quite profound in regard to the, the healing piece, but also being, you know, uncomfortable, but also able to work with that, right? And, and move forward and set the yardstick forward. Like, hey, we're going to be doing these things, for example, like that asynchronous day, or, um, you know, we're going to incorporate more choice within our programs where students can maybe take that class online, or for example, these, you know, pedagogical practices that are, you know, more in tune with neuroscience than um, things that aren't actually based in neuroscience at all. So um, definitely, um, you know, really um, great point. So before we, uh, you know, end each episode and, um, and then I'll ask all of our listeners to um, look at all of your content and, and follow you and, and check out your future book coming out. What right now do you think that, you know, each of you go ahead and we'll do a roundtable of like one tip or strategy that you recommend for all educators, regardless of their role and context, to help them navigate the present and future of education. What do you think right now is something that, um, you know, educators could use? We'll start with uh, Dr. Jones. Thank you, Matt. I would say connect. So I think there's power in collaboration. I think there's power in human connection. I think we saw what happened when we weren't connecting as people. You know, one major takeaway is to increase that degree of connection. But I also want to say, 
Matt, that, you know, we're in a time and I'm sure you're experiencing this less and less people are going into this profession. It's harder more now than ever to retain teachers. So as we're talking about this, I could give you a thousand tips and strategies, you know, and I have them. I have them right in my back pocket, ready to give out to everybody. But my wife's also a, a, a longtime first grade teacher. Um, she's now fourth grade special ed. And I can tell you this transition and listening to her, what really has made this school year work for her is a time with her colleagues. Being, you know, going into the classroom as a special ed education teacher, always dealing with the, the real little guys. You know, I mean, that's tough. First grade is tough. Kindergarten is tough. It's now she's telling me it's the work around curriculum. It's the work around the resources. It's the sharing of materials. It's the sharing of ideas that is really working through. And it's kind of, you know, reinforcing for me that all of the stuff that I want teachers to become excellent at, you know, from formative assessments to high levels of engagement at rigorous levels. Right. And I got this beautiful scale in my head right now. It all starts with the power of connection, the connection with one another, the connection with students, the connection with what we're learning. And so that would be my tip. Make sure as administrators, your teachers are connected with one another. And then teachers, if you're out there and you're a veteran, connect with those novice teachers. This is how this profession will survive and continue to like be a noble profession. It has to happen within. I'm going to build on what Joe said and just say lift, lift, lift. We need to praise and celebrate one another. There are bright spots. We point out of a lot of problems in the book, but we also know that there are places where people are doing great things. They're right next door. They're in your school. They're in your school system. We need to go watch that. We need to replicate it like Joe says, and we need to learn how to praise one another. What we know through our, our research in, in other areas is that 70% of managers say that they praise and celebrate their workers and 70 plus percent of workers say that they're not praised or celebrated for their work. So what we need to do is figure out models for doing that better and making sure people feel like they're getting better and doing the right things. And in a lot of cases they are. Um, and so we need to be able to make sure that that story is what we tell one another in the system. And it's what we also tell in the cul-de-sac about the great things that are happening in our schools so that somebody else isn't telling the story not to work in them. And I guess I would talk, I would speak to being intentional and connecting what your intention is with the impact of your actions and be looking to make sure that those two things align. I think that there is a lot of um, satisfaction and this is my intent, this is what I was trying to accomplish, and then that's sort of the end of it. And I think the power really comes in making sure that what you intended to be the outcome actually is the outcome. And in the times when that is not the case, to take a step back and look to see what could I change about the way that I'm trying to achieve the outcome as opposed to standing to defend the intention or the purpose? So just looking at that alignment and making sure that it's there. No, all those things are, I think all things that, you know, if you're listening, hopefully you're taking down some good notes relating to, um, I love the notion of 
celebrating all the good things that we're doing. I'm doing a lot this week, actually, in my practice. We're sending out um, a whole bunch of things that we're doing really great and then really specifying, you know, who's doing it and why. So I think that's great. And then um, also, too, um, this notion of connectedness. There's a study done um, about three million people. It's called the Mappiness Project. And essentially, if they feel connected at work and they feel like they're getting along with people well, their increase of happiness is increases, uh, I think, like three and a half fold. When actually, when you're going to work, your happiness is one of the lowest pieces, if regardless of profession. Just by the way, I'm not saying education in general, but um, but being connected and enjoying people you work with and being connected that way. So um, I think that's um, huge. And also, I think what Connie mentioned is that um, alignment piece and making sure things are coherent. And and that goes with the messaging piece as well in regards to like what are great things are happening in schools make sure there's that alignment there so that you can ensure that you know they're coming from the source this is all great all these things are happening that these teachers students and community are doing so as we finish up the episode can you please tell me what's the best way to connect with all three of you go ahead connie you can start Okay, uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so my Twitter handle is pretty easy. It's at Connie Hamilton, or I have a website is ConnieHamilton.org. That says com. I might have typed it wrong. Sorry, org. ConnieHamilton.org. Go ahead, uh, TJ. Sure, Matt. Thank you. You can find me on Twitter as well at TJ Very V A R I on Twitter at TJ Very, and then Joe and I are the schoolhouse302.com. So you can find us at the schoolhouse302.com. And we have a ton of free leadership resources there, blogs, podcasts, book recommendations, videos that we do all free. Follow us on that site. You'll get our newsletter, the schoolhouse302.com. And Matt, if they really want to connect, um, Delaware is a great place to visit. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm really excited that the world's going to see your book soon. Seven Mind Chefs for School Leaders, uh, finding new ways to think about old problems. And, I, you know, both your uh, websites are fantastic, a lot to digest and take advantage of, uh, regardless of your position of leadership or in, in the classroom in education. And, we look forward to um, seeing what you guys come up with in the next, uh, you know, year after this book and hope to run into you sometime at a conference. And um, with that, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And we look forward to our next episode coming up in the next few weeks. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening. Goodbye.